Young Academy Groningen presents Humans of Rug. Hi, I'm Tracy Pelzer and I work at Educational Support and Innovation, which is the central instructional support team of the University of Groningen. Humans of the University of Groningen. Hello everyone, my name is Oskar Strein and I work at Campus Friesland. Your host, Lucas Lindsay. Hello. Casper van der Kooi. Hi. Yeah, so thank you so much for, for being here. And first, can you say a bit more about each of you, about your, your background, so what, what you do at the university, and also interesting, as we already discussed, what actually brought you here, how you ended up in Groningen, because both of you are not originally from anywhere close. So, Tracy, you want to tell us? Go first. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm actually from Western Canada, a small city called Kamloops, which sounds like a breakfast cereal, but is actually a really <laughs> beautiful place in the mountains. Um, and I came on vacation to the Netherlands and uh, immediately felt like I was home and fell in love with it and uh, decided to uh, apply for some jobs and ended up coming to the University of Groningen. Um, and it really feels like home here and I, uh, I love being here. And um, I love my work uh, at AC or Educational Support and Innovation. I get to work with teachers in every faculty all over the university, um, meeting new people all the time. Uh, we have such an international faculty, so just hearing a lot of different perspectives and, and um View viewpoints on things, um, yeah, and and really working with teachers to help them feel more confident and competent in their teaching. So uh, our department, we really help with uh, anything that helps move education forward in a positive way. Um, really wanting to support teachers as um, they improve in their teaching abilities, because many uh, instructors join the university without having any formal training in how to be an educator. Of uh, so that's our our department. Uh, primary area of support. And, and what did you do before you came to the Netherlands? What is your background? Yeah, so I was actually a primary and secondary school teacher for many years. And for the last 10 years of my career in Canada, I worked as an instructional technology integration coach. And so I was helping uh, teachers, uh, kindergarten through grade 12, also working with Bachelor of Education students uh, to help them integrate technology in really powerful ways into their teaching and learning activities. So I, uh, when Corona happened, um, it's, it feels bad to say this, but I was I was actually excited about it because I felt like I'd been training for a decade. <laughs> I'm ready. Let me loose. Opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and how about you, Oscar? What brings you to Groningen or Friesland? Yeah, so I'm um, now I'm an assistant professor at Campus Friesland, uh, the 11th faculty of the University of Groningen in, in Leeuwarden. Uh, interdisciplinary faculty where I also work in an interdisciplinary uh, research center, the data research center. Um, I grew up in uh, Tyrol in Austria, in a small village, also in the mountains. Uh, my family name is actually a typical Tyrolian name because, you know, it's Stein is not a typical, it's often difficult to pronounce for people. And uh, yeah, I studied law and philosophy in Innsbruck and towards uh, the end of that, I got the chance to do an internship in the EU parliament. And then I really realized, so this European international kind of thing is what interests me. So I went to uh, Germany to do uh, another uh, law master in uh, European integration, really specialized in, in human rights law and, um, and technology. At the time, there were the first drafts of, of the general data protection regulation. 
And uh, I was really interested in, in working on this, at that time, academic concept on the right to be forgotten and see whether that would actually, you know, work. And now that is integrated in the GDPR. And when I was finished with that, I, um, yeah, I really wanted to stay in academia, um, but I also somehow wanted to explore more uh, of, this, of this whole technology space. And I, I knew that there was a, a UN Special Rapporteur for Privacy coming up. So this is of the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights of the United Nations. There is sort of a, a range of ambassadors which work on one specific issue. And that was the aftermath of the Snowden revelations and surveillance and these kind of things. And um, then it uh, got a bit wild because it was not clear whether he's from Malta. His team is based in Malta. So um, would I go to Malta? Would I go to Geneva? And eventually, it turned out it was Groningen. So <laughs> not quite Malta. <laughs> I, I then had the chance here to start at the European Law Department with Shanvip uh, Suponici and the Security, Technology and E-Privacy Research Group and worked then three years on this mandate and a EU project and then I joined Campus Friesland. Thank you. Yeah, and so Tracy, you already mentioned that uh, you you are passionate about digital education. So... What are what makes it so great? I just think um, it takes down the walls of our classroom, and uh, that's something that I I think a lot of people finally recognize this year was that maybe before we just thought about what could happen inside <clears throat> our physical walls of, of where we were, um, but then we realized that due to the use of technology, we can bring in experts or guest speakers or even ourselves as instructors maybe were in different countries or our students were in different countries and we still had ways to meet each other and learn from and with each other um, and that yeah it just facilitated uh, the continuation of education in a difficult time um, I think if if this was 10 years ago that we had the pandemic how different it would have been um, but yeah, it's it's mostly the ability to be able to to join each other in different ways, to collaborate in different ways, um, to create, especially to be able to create in different formats and mediums and share it, not just with the people in the room, but potentially all over the world. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, well, uh, bringing in, so we have a lot of, um, is it the Envoy project, I think, going on? So we do... Um, different digital exchanges with other universities maybe where we are um, joining together to uh, have our students solve problems with students and instructors in other countries. Uh, myself, I even did that when I was still teaching in Canada. We had a project about um, plastic pollution with my students in Kamloops and my friend's students in Bangladesh. And because of the time zone difference and the geography difference, we could never actually physically meet even mm -hmm. in real time with the technology, but we could use video and other mediums to create things and share and have conversations. And we really did feel like we became friends with those students, even though we'd actually never met them. Um, um, and then we could create things to share with one another. Um, and when you can send a link to another group of students and say, here's what we made, and could you give us feedback on this or respond to it, or could you add to it, even you can collaborate on things together. It doesn't matter if you're in the same place. Um, that's really powerful. And I think it really breaks down, uh, yeah, international barriers too. And when, when you don't know a group of people, um, you have the opportunity to be fearful of them because sometimes we are afraid of what we don't understand. But when you look people in the eye, uh, whether that's through technology or, or physically, um, and you have conversations with them, it, um, 
you really feel like you become friends and you understand the world in a different way. Yeah. And how was this experience for you, Oscar? Because you also have been teaching during the corona uh, pandemic online. So the shift online, how, do you share this enthusiasm or, or what was your experience over the last months? No, generally, I think uh, Tracy is right with what she says. And I personally um, enjoyed it um, also. So I think it was a nice opportunity to rethink about restructuring the content. And at Campus Friesland, you know, our programs are relatively new. So I think with the kind of situation and academics that we are, um, we are quite open to doing that and, and reconsidering something from scratch. I understand it might be different for our colleagues who, uh, you know, have established courses for longer, which they fine-tuned over the years. I think it also depends a lot on audience size. So uh, we usually in our programs, we don't have that big audiences once at a time. And I think that still leaves more space for interaction. Whereas when you more or less feel like talking into a black screen, into the void, with you, knowing there are somewhere like 300 people or so listening to you, That's not uh, that's not as, as nice, of course. Yeah, and Tracy, you also ad advise uh, us academics about specific software. So, which is the greatest software <laughs> you want to tell the world about? <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's one greatest software, um, and we we kind of run into a problem with that. Is uh, sometimes people say, "Just give me a list of tools and what they do," and then we start to build around the tool rather than say which mm. tool is best for the the learning outcome I want to achieve or what I want to actually have my students accomplish. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I always find it dangerous to, to list one specific tool. Um, I think one thing that was really positive is that we had uh, Nestor or Blackboard for a really long time. And most people would maybe post their course syllabus there, um, you know, maybe a quiz or something. But it was very underutilized. And in fact, we had Blackboard collaborate for many years and no one even knew it existed. And suddenly from Friday to Monday, our, our usage spiked and it was it was um, really starting to be used. And we were really grateful that it was in our toolbox. So I think your learning management system can be sort of like a Swiss army knife of things. Um, And uh, I think we're allowed to announce now that we're moving uh, to Brightspace uh, mm -hmm. over the next couple of years. And I think that's a really positive change. I mean, any change is going to have its, its pain points and uncomfortableness. Um, but I think it's much more user friendly. And there's a lot of different functions and features within it that um, now that teachers have started playing, uh, even within Blackboard, it's, there's similar things, discussion forums and quizzes and, and different ways of incorporating interactivity and using the online medium uh, in a way that really supports education. So that would be my, my first thing, is looking at our, our learning management system, because it does so many things. Oscar, how is, how is all this when you were a student? I wonder. You, you work on things now that maybe didn't even exist or were just, just starting to emerge. How is that? Yeah, I wouldn't say in terms of didn't exist. That's, uh, it's not that long ago that I was a student. <laughs> But... Um, But what is certainly a difference, I think, is connectivity. Uh, so now it's possible, you know, we're having video calls, we're having all of these things much more smoothly than like 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I think also what I see with the students that um, as an academic community, we probably have to reconsider 
the value of the mediums that we're used to, so writing and papers. Mm -hmm. I think it's much uh, broader now. What we are doing right now is recording a podcast, right? But what is the scientific value of recording a podcast? Or what is the scientific value of, of using video? And the educational value as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think there are a lot of changes in that regard. Um, at the same time, you know, looking at it from a governance perspective, everything is much is flowing much more. So everything is more in the cloud. It's more difficult to say uh, which kind of rules apply when and and for whom. Um, and all of these are very very difficult questions. And at the same time, I think as an academic community. Uh, is also the question of what is our role as a stakeholder in this because I sometimes wonder, uh, you know, we, we are very proud and, and rightfully so of the kind of buildings that we can use for working, but mm -hmm. are, could we be as proud, uh, for example, of, of the cloud services that we use, right? As proud as we are when we use the Akademische Bau, when we use Gmail, for instance, mm -hmm. as a tool that works, um, is that the same kind of ownership And are we, are we having the same kind of aspirations for this? And I think when it comes to going forward and shaping the identity, uh, I think we need to have a more clear strategy and better ideas on what it means and why we use those things. And whose property is it? Yeah. Um, and what are the rights yeah. that come with it? Yeah. But what a great opportunity for education in that area, right? That uh, I think sometimes we tend to lean one way or the other pendulum mm -hmm. swing and so we get a little bit um, stuck in thinking about what could go wrong uh, when it's actually a really amazing opportunity for us because we are using so many more tools we do work in education to start educating people on how to be more safe and and the the different implications for using different tools so uh, now we can a lot of people are questioning that and I was so proud of our teachers that I was working with because they had a lot of really good questions about different tools and privacy they were really thinking about um, how that might impact themselves and their students And that was really nice to see. So uh, it opens up a dialogue we might not have been having otherwise. And then it gives us the opportunity to also discuss that with our students and, and educate each other and learn more about it. Hmm. Yeah, I, if I may just add to that, I think it's, it's very good that you mentioned that we have to have a constructive mindset and looking for the positive things. And it's often framed as a, as a privacy debate. But I actually think it's not for all of us together it, privacy is not the most important point it's really about things like academic freedom for the individual because the kind of tools that we use to shape what we do and how we do it and as an organization it's also about uh, collective autonomy right so we're so dependent sometimes of of big data infrastructures that we have actually quite little say in how they are shaping things mm -hmm. and how we use information So yeah. that's, that's something to reconsider, I think. But what I think is also very important is, is, the, is the effectiveness of all the digital means in, in terms of teaching. What, what do you think, how does that relate to conventional, perhaps old-fashioned classroom teaching, the, the, the digital, digital ways by which we can teach? How does that relate in terms of effectiveness of bringing your, your, your material across? Yeah, again, it depends how it's used. Um, it, yeah, it's what you do with it that matters. Mm -hmm. um, so it's what's really nice is seeing people start to think about ways they could be more interactive or achieve different things with their students um, by using the tools that they could not do without the use of technology. Can you give an example of that? Mm, 
yeah sh so showing videos interactive um interactive plots these kind of things yeah so uh, there's a model called summer um which uh i'm drawing a blank on the name of the the man who created the model but it's um sub so there's one level called substitution augmentation uh, modification and redefinition and mm -hmm. it's a model of technology integration into instruction and the goal is always to be sort of above the line to get above substitution and augmentation into modification and redefinition um so that's the the goal and of course you're going to bounce around it's not a ladder where you get to the top and stay there um, but substitution would be saying, well, we used to write, you know, something on paper. Now we type it in a Word document. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't really increase the learning in any no. big way. When you start to say, okay, now we can use spell check or now we can do this or, or maybe we're now we can work on collaborative documents where um, we can be typing in real time together in different parts of the world. Then that starts to get higher up the summer level. And then redefinition would be, like we said, uh, these maybe global um, collaborations on projects, um, being able to video conference with someone from another country or bring their expertise into your classroom um, where you could not have done that before without the use of the technology um, or creating and sharing a, a multimedia video, video or a podcast. Um, you can't do that without the technology. You could have a conversation in the room and that's where it ends, but you didn't have the ability to share it with a, a broader audience. So starting to take those things into our classroom teaching and say, how can we use technology to really amplify our students' voices, share their message, make them um, feel like they're able to show what they know in more creative ways. Um, yeah, and, and then again, collaborate and use uh, you know the brain power of many people all over the world to come up with new ideas for things and, and how to solve problems together. Um, yeah, but sometimes the best technology is still pencil and paper. So hmm. it, it doesn't mean that we should be aiming to do everything in a digital way um, just because we can. It, yeah. it, you don't hammer in a, you know, a nail with a screwdriver. You have to pick the best tools for the, the task you want to accomplish. If I may get back to the point about ownership, because I think it also the move to digital education, you also move the space in which the teaching happens, at which at least a public university used to be in publicly owned buildings, public places. But with the move to online, it's increasingly platforms owned by private companies in Silicon Valley or wherever else. So that also brings certain risks with it, right? And so what are some of the downsides of, of this move online? Maybe Oscar. Yeah, I, I was just thinking of uh, one uh, project that we uh, did at our faculty because the, um, uh, the dean, Andre Twitter, and Matt Kohler, who's working on voice technology, and also one of the members of the Young Academy, Carson Schulz, we were we were looking into using virtual reality headsets, and um, we we had a we got some Oculus headsets for that, and it's very it's amazing the sense of presence that you get from that, and I I must say honestly, so I think. 
quite a lot about emerging trends, but I completely underestimated the potential because it's so much, you know, it's much cheaper now. You you can use the headset in a way where you don't have to be connected all the time via cable. It's much easier to manage the environment around you. It still has a little bit of a of an isolating effect uh, when you are at home with the with the other people who are in your room. But I was really uh, very heavily impressed how far it has come. And I mean, there also at the Ruch we have this uh, mixed reality hub. And there's lots of things which which probably then really, you know, there's a, a new generation of technologies awaiting. But then at the same time, of course, I was also checking, you know, the apps and looking into the privacy policies. And the, some of the things, they're simply not GDPR compliant. So it, this is illegal, what they're doing. Hmm. Um, and then the other thing is that Facebook, you know, Oculus is a Facebook-owned company um, and also, I think this week or so, they, they announced that they would be investing more in this sort of mixed reality space and creating sort of the metaverse, you know, using the Snow Crash uh, uh, 1990s uh, science fiction novel kind of uh, uh, term. And and it's so owned already as a space by this enterprise that I'm, yeah, that is where the whole thing gets said, right? Because there is there is no space to do it not on their terms, and there is so much power into shaping the hardware and shaping the service. And it's really good, right? So, so you're really torn apart somehow. So on the one hand, you really want, okay, this is great. This is the next big thing. Let's go for it. At the same time, when we do this uh, with our students, and in a way, it's also when we use Gmail now, we are training the users for Google, right? So the, mm. the, the kind of methods, how we work with, uh, with the agendas, how we work with Google Docs, all of these things, we are training their customers. The commercial interest is is, yeah. is always there, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, what would be the way out? Traditionally, universities had a big role in in open source, but um, you know, it's difficult to polish the the, the services to that kind of level. Mm. Um, and uh, also, when it comes to the hardware integration, that's usually where it really goes wrong because um, there is not the same level of open source hardware than there is, for instance, with open source software. Although there could be a lot of good reasons for open source hardware, such as, you know, making devices more sustainable, making them more repairable, things mm -hmm. like that. So there's really lots of things to do. And I mean, ideally, as universities, we will get more involved in that space. Hmm. That point actually connects to concern I often have with, with being online so much and moving so much of our data online is that the ecological footprint of all these servers that are running all the time, they take so much energy. Um, what is what's both your take on that? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a discussion which is a bit at the infancy right now. You see it a bit. So there was uh, AI ethicist at Google who was fired because she had concerns about how much energy they needed to train language models and that it is actually unethical and that there are other things that could be better done with the energy. In the Netherlands, we had the discussion about the data centers and that they get yeah. the renewable energy. Mm -hmm. So um, it's really uh, difficult. I think it's actually one of the nice things of working at Campus Friesland that it's easier to work in small groups on those interdisciplinary questions. Mm -hmm. But I really see that these these spaces don't merge enough for those research disciplines. So there is there is the drive for technology, which is still a lot like larger, better, etc. And then there is the, the, the sustainability kind of research line. And these are two different worlds, you mean? 
Yeah, there are some attempts of merging them, but it's very, you know, usually it's something like, oh, we're using Bitcoin and it's a, a cryptocurrency which uh, uses a lot of energy for mining and that's bad and that's very dense. But it's not like we're designing the technology and we have to integrate this from the start as an as an aspect to really make it different. But what do you think is is, is, is the way forward then if, if we want to, to attack these concerns? Yeah, well, our take as, as a faculty is, of course, that we train people already with an interdisciplinary mindset mm-hmm. so uh, that they that they are aware of the concerns and that they're that they're not trying to be the best in one single discipline. Of course, there's a lot of merit in that, right? Doing one thing really, really well. But I think we're living more and more in a time where it's more important to connect those specialities and to have more, again, of a, of a holistic vision where you would like to go to and and that also starts with education obviously and how we how we train people hmm. those are some great questions for university of Groningen students <laughs> to uh, try to solve yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and tracy if we can travel back in time to mm-hmm. like march 2020 when <clears throat> the lockdown happened so as you mentioned at the beginning like overnight everything was moved from the classroom online and I was teaching a course during the time myself mm-hmm. and when on Monday suddenly it was all it was overnight the Monday suddenly it was online I felt it was a miracle that it somehow worked and it happened and and the, the infrastructure didn't break down so you as being one of the person <laughs> working in the background of making this possible can you tell us a bit more about What happened during these days uh, must have been extremely hectic period. And how was it possible to to make it work in uh, like without anyone really preparing for it, or maybe you were prepared? <laughs> <laughs> We've been thinking about it, but for a short time. But was what was really interesting to me is. Um, I have a number of friends who are educators in China, and they were seven weeks ahead of us in terms Mm. of the virus. And so I was really curious about their experiences, hoping we wouldn't need to know how to deal with things, but watching what they were doing anyway and asking a lot of questions. And... um, Yeah, our team had begun to develop sort of a corona plan, of course, thinking, no, we're never going to need to use this, but but starting to think ahead and plan ahead. And then, of course, suddenly we did need to use it. Uh, so we already had some ideas in place. And then our team at AC, I was so proud of us, how we mobilized and so many people came in over the weekend and... Um, Yeah, I think, so Amy Cuddy from Harvard Business School, she has a model where she talks about three stages of crisis. And the first stage is always emergency where like you're really clear and motivated and it's really urgent and you feel really purposeful. And I think everyone at the university was sort of in that phase at the beginning. Um, And sometimes you either panic and, and turtle or you say, hey, you know, saddle up. We're going to we're going to do this. And I was so proud of our educators at the Ruch because everyone just really stepped up and Monday on Monday and said, "Okay, how do we make this happen? And so on our team, we were leading webinars and trying to help people feel more comfortable using online uh, platforms like Collaborate to video conference with their students. Um, but it was the educators, the, the instructors, who really had the, the big job of implementing that. And uh, what a, a wonderful thing they did to keep learning going for our students. And um, yeah, it was a really nice 
feeling uh, just I was so proud of our whole organization uh, of how we we just adapted and showed up and did it. And in what stage of the crisis um, are we now? And how, how did these stages develop? Because yeah. this was the first week or two, maybe. Yeah, sure. Or even were the first, adopted. I think, first couple months. And people just, yeah, you you have this sense of urgency, so you sort of show up and you're. Uh, she also calls it, I think, surge capacity. So you really mm-hmm. put out a lot of energy uh, because Creativity. it feels very, yeah, purposeful. And you're like, yeah, we have to find out a way to make this happen, and let's let's work together. And uh, I really saw on our team at AC how we came together so well during that time, um, but also the whole university. Then she she talks about a stage of regression. So when you realize this is going to go on for a very long time, you start to feel a bit tired and hopeless. Mm. And and it was interesting to observe that in in everyone even in myself um, but you do then reach sort of a phase of recovery where you're like, okay, this is the, the new normal and how are we going to make this work? Because if we just sit here feeling sorry for ourselves, nothing good's going to happen. Um, and it is possible to move between those stages a lot. Um, and I like to say you can also be in more than one stage at a time. Um, so I think that's that's been something really interesting about this whole experience is that uh, as humans, we like it to be one way or the other, and especially as as researchers, like in an academic university. So we're like, it's either this is so it proves my hypothesis or it disproves my hypothesis. But we got stuck in this whole situation of this and this. So uh, yeah, we don't really feel comfortable using online tools and we're learning how to do it. Um, we don't really want to be away from our students, and there are some really nice benefits to working at home. And so there's there's no one negative situation that is completely 100% bad. There's no one positive situation that's completely 100% good. There's always mm-hmm. unintended positive and negative consequences in either one. And I saw so many unintended positive consequences in the quality of instruction and, and the types of things our instructors were experimenting with in their own classrooms during this time. And I feel like the last year and a half has been one gigantic experiment <laughs> where we're just trying things and saying, does this work or does this not? Uh, let's try it this way. But how much of a success has this experiment been? Right, Because, of course, we're all very relieved and glad that we can continue some education. But at the same time, everyone also seems even more <laughs> relieved and mm-hmm. glad that we can go back to teaching in, in the classroom. So um, I'm curious about Oscar's take on that as well. Yeah, yeah. Every advantage has its disadvantage, right? So I think the advantage of of being uh, online is that it's very effective. I also saw from myself from working, I could you know I could teach and at the same day go for a conference online and then still go in the evening running because I'm home. Mm-hmm. So so these are a lot of things where you yeah you really see okay it's much more effective and I think also the students realize that. Then at the same time. Of course, uh, I see now with the students that the whole community aspect, that's really, so the informal things, right? That's really difficult to to do. And we have a program, which is, you know, a university college program, Global Responsibility and Leadership. And there, the, the whole community building is really essential to the program. So you see that that is more difficult with the tools that we currently have online. Hmm. But then, what I also see now being in the in the fourth week, um, is that for the first two weeks everybody came to class and then people started to get sick 
And now the expectation is when they are home and sick, but not too, you know, not really that sick so that they still could follow online, that I enable hybrid teaching. Mm-hmm. So that that we have the equipment in class so that they can still follow what's going on. Right. So there you also see that the the online aspect, in a sense, is then, you know, also feeding into our reality now. And you see really things changed in, in what the expectations are. I bet that as a teacher, maybe doing the hybrid classes are even more exhausting than fully online because you need to divide your attention over two media. Yes, it is, but um, I personally don't mind it too much. Um, I think it's good that it also gives you other opportunities. So, for instance, when you have guest lecturers, and mm. uh, there are some of the guest lecturers for this course which are in London or other places, they wouldn't come no. for a ninety-minute session, session for st- with students, right? But I can get them into the classroom if I have the, the these kind of mediums. And so it's really a different way of thinking and, and approaching things and and trying to be constructive about it. And what do you think going forward will be the things that will stay that we learned through the pandemic and maybe some of the things that will go? So, Tracy, you're having a lot of experience with uh, getting insights across different faculties, many teachers. So what is your take? Like, how will uh, university teaching in five or ten years, in uh, hopefully non-pandemic circumstances <laughs> look like? How much will still be online and, and what will be the things that will be kept? Yeah, I think that's that's hard to predict because technology changes really rapidly. Um, but education does not. <laughs> um, if you look at our education model, it's the same as 100 years ago. It really is. People come in, they sit in desks in a classroom, we talk from the front. Um, and that was something that was really exciting for me was to see a shift of that. We were pushed into a situation that was so uncomfortable that we had no choice but to adapt. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people, some people still chose not to, but many people did some really good, important work. Um, and uh, I just actually this week, so I won't say the name because I didn't ask permission, but from another Young Academy Groningen member, um, shared with me uh, her evaluations from her course. And she had done some training with me, um, which uh, she was really excited about the things she learned and the things she learned she took and implemented in her class really well. And the evaluations were very positive, um, which really made her feel excited. So things like uh, just shifting the way you do things, it's more of a pivot than a 180 degree turn. Teachers were doing so many things well already. Um, But so implementing small quizzes, um, really using synchronous time, whether that was online together or physically in a classroom together for things that students don't want to miss out on, like the connection moments, the conversation, the understanding um, negotiations that you do when you're talking to each other, Um, using uh, knowledge clips instead of full frontal lecture. Um, Those were things that students found really positive and So she said, read the open comments, and and there were pages of them, and it was a very large class, which was very challenging to move to an online format, Uh, but the way that it worked, uh, it was very positive, and so there's a lot of those things now, and and I've had this conversation with a lot of teachers where they say, there were things I really liked about what I tried online that I wouldn't have tried if the pandemic hadn't happened, and so now it's that, that work of figuring out, well, what are the pieces that worked really well for interaction? 
interaction, for learning, uh, for making us feel like a community um, that I will keep from the pandemic. And then what are the things I missed so much about being in a physical classroom together and how do I make a blend of those two things together? And that will and be our new normal. Can you give concrete examples of what were the things that that people felt worked really well, the pieces that stood out uh, as being the positive experiences? Yeah, so planning for more interaction, I think. So I was just talking to a teacher at FSE and he was talking about how now he's using our polling software. So the university has a license to poll everywhere and where before he might have just asked a question in the live lecture and it's always sort of the same couple students who maybe raise their hand. Um, and it feels from a student perspective uh, very vulnerable to put your hand up and say something in front of a whole room of people looking at you. So now he uses the polling software. He shows the results up on the screen. Mm -hmm. He's able to get better feedback and more people will respond to him in the room. Um, so he gets a better sense of whether people are understanding or not and how to adjust his instruction to, to better see their learning needs. And uh, so things like that. Um, Or I, I just did a UTQ um, final interview, a portfolio interview with, with a teacher this week. And she was talking about how um, previous, previous to Corona, she really felt like an instructor had to be more removed from the students. You really had to show that you were the authority in the room and don't make any connection with your students in order to maintain sort of that instructor sense. Um, and then during the pandemic, she just realized that now we we're all in this together and we're all human beings. And I want my students not to become too, you know, I don't want to share too much of my personal information. That's not what I mean. There's no oversharing going on, but just to actually develop more, <clears throat> sorry, relationships with, with students and be more approachable. In a, and, in a way less hierarchical. Yeah. And so she really saw during the pandemic how people were struggling and maybe Maybe they just needed to be able to reach out to feel like she was more approachable if they were having, uh, you know, some issues in their personal life that affected their study um, that that she could help address. And of course, there are things student services can also help with. It's not all on the instructor, but but she found that that was a benefit. And she said, now, even though, you know, we're moving forward. I really see the benefit of finding ways to build in that, I, I call it humanization of, of our instruction. Yeah. Humanization through digitalization. That yes. sounds like a big paradox. Yeah, <laughs> but that's the thing, right? Now we're forced into that. It's not one or the other. It's the yes and these both can exist. Yeah. And that's hard for our brains to wrap around, but it's true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and what are the challenges we're facing um, the next years, decades, maybe, when it comes to digital university. What do you think, Oscar? I think just building on that, that um, there is this question that I already uh, raised, which is about how can we be an academic community in an environment where the digital is as real, in a sense, the virtual is as real as reality. So um, it sounds a, a bit uh, weird, but uh, it is just true that all of these tools, all of these methods of interaction they are part of what we are as an organization. And if you think about it, when you go to a building and sit down and be then on the desk and then work in the cloud all the time, that cloud is as much reality as the stairs. And it's as important, right? But we are not, our thinking hasn't moved on to, to really um, including that in how we build communities, in how we uh, you know, create peers, in how we uh, shape careers. 
all of these are open questions right now it feels a little bit like we've been uh, thrown in the border people like Tracy waited for that um, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah that's that's where we are right so but, but and, is, yeah. it, is it your wish that the virtual is going to be as real as the reality it is what happens it is just and it, this is also created by humans right and mm -hmm. I think it would be very weird for academics who are so much in their heads all the time and where it's all about thoughts and abstraction mm -hmm. that we refuse that the digital domain is part of, of our reality it, it just doesn't make sense yeah that is but I think making the virtual as real as reality is, yeah. is, is, is a, a large leap forward still yeah sure there are always like technical you know there's only so much you can do there are still limitations and you have to be careful but at the same time there are also different kind of methods for teaching i mean trace has already mentioned we teach the same way than we than we do a hundred years ago when we're just you know having a normal class so i think it's really taking a step back and looking at all of these possibilities and deciding you know it's just a moment of of recalibrating things and uh, and to a certain extent, digital technology enhances those capabilities, and that's a good thing. And we have now more, mostly focused on digital education, but also life of researchers has also changed a lot mm -hmm. through the move to digital sphere. So can you maybe say a bit more about your research life, Oscar? How has it been affected by what has happened over the last few months? And, and kind of also hear what are the benefits and drawbacks from... Yeah, that's actually very interesting uh, because I am involved in one uh, EU-funded research project uh, where half of the project was still like normal and uh, now there are two months left and uh, there are people who I just know uh, online and from online conferences and we organized a, a conference in February um, and, and then we saw each other again on the screen, a colleague who lives in Paris and then we re I, I just realized at the moment we never saw each other because we started working later on in the project, right? And then there's another project um, that we're doing at the moment with um, the Center for Digital Society at uh, Gachamada University in Yogyakarta in Indonesia and that's also really interesting because it's about enhancing training capabilities for cybersecurity and we have planned a lot of like research exchange and people coming here and us going there and nothing of that happened right so like everything <laughs> had to happen online and uh yeah now fortunately the project got extended for a year but um it's really you know just sharing this six hour time difference working on all of these issues which are which are new completely different cultural kind of context i've never been to indonesia um and, and yet we are still working together and and producing results so yeah it would be it would be nicer to have the full spectrum of of capabilities but right now that's what we do and we have to make it work and time differences i'm sure is something that, that tracy can relate to very well because it's not just our work life but also personal lives i guess which changing a lot with digitalization and you were saying before that, that yeah you might not be here if there wasn't all these digital technologies that enable you to still be in touch with your your family in canada far away yeah right? of course yeah so so how uh, so what is this, what is the role of technology in your life like not not just in your work career but also in your private life like can you say a bit more about that, how, you, how it helps you to stay in touch with, with, you, with your family, which might be far away? 
Yeah, well, um, yeah, so my family is a, a nine and a half hour flight away, so it's quite far and a nine hour time difference. So um, it, it's still amazing to me that I can be sitting on my sofa in Groningen and I send a message via, you know, whatever messaging service to my son who's in Canada. And I say, you know, you haven't sent me a photo of your puppy recently. I want to see a picture. And within seconds, bing, it's it's there. And I think I still I'm amazed that we can do this. Um, yeah. So we're able to stay connected in ways that we could not have previously, uh, because maybe we would have, you know, people who immigrated from, from the Netherlands to Canada um, maybe would never have seen their families ever again. When they say goodbye, it really was forever. And now we, we have the ability to still have conversations and, and talk to each other and leave video messages and uh, it can be synchronous or asynchronous. Um, but uh, it's also not it's not the same as being together. And I think that was something that was the hardest part of the pandemic. And the most beautiful part is we realized how much we really need to be with each other. Um, mm. That technology is a wonderful substitution in a lot of ways, and it can enable, enable a lot of really positive things. And it does not replace really being together. Um, and I think that's important to remember. Uh, and we missed yeah, just the, the physical sense of being in a space together or with my family of hugging them. Uh, yeah. And when I when you only see from their shoulders up <laughs> ever, yeah. it's, it's very different. It's interesting to meet some colleagues and people now that I've only <laughs> met online and they're like, oh, you're you're taller than I was expecting or <laughs> you know, things like that. It's kind of yeah. funny. Yeah. And, and I feel the same about them. But um yeah, from a personal perspective, it's it's really quite amazing that we can do this. Yeah, and it's it's still not a replacement forever. Yeah. Yeah, and it has changed so so quick. I mean, it's something we now take for granted. But, uh, but the, like even when I was growing up, like there was when you went abroad, you had to make these very expensive phone calls, right? And, mm. Which is now it's, it seems so far away, and it, and it hasn't been such a long period of time so yeah or you send a postcard but you actually returned before the postcard <laughs> exactly. arrived yeah, yeah. depending yeah. on which country you were right? it's yeah the, the efficiency of the postal services so but yeah so this has happened probably last 15 years or so like mo most of uh, is my kind of wake idea so if we think about if this keeps evolving at, at this pace so so what's the next thing if it keeps evolving at that pace another 15 years I know this will be speculation, but but what what are things that may be possible in the future that now are not? You mentioned virtual reality is something that is starting. So so is this something that you think is something that will we're going in that direction, or might it rather be a counter movement and people are are trying to rather not go there? Yeah, that is exactly the question, and I think it's impossible to predict. Um, certainly, from the technology pipeline, I think I mean virtual reality is one thing. There is augmented reality. There is blending all of those things together, so that you would have, for ex in, uh, for example, a meeting, and somebody would uh, uh, meet us online. But there still would be sort of a um, uh, opportunity to have a presence, like an avatar or so, in the room. 
um, so that also that some people might use uh, VR goggles, but others might just use their mobile phones or their laptops, and you would still have the same eating and interaction uh, capabilities. All of this is um, evolving quite rapidly, but then again, there is this enormous private ownership behind it. And then I think is also the question of, of what is the desire of society to really do this. Because right now I think, um, yeah, a lot of people are happy just to be able to see each other again. And um, so I'm, I'm, I wouldn't... I wouldn't say that in 15 years we are just, you know, meeting each other virtually anymore because, as you said, Tracy, the, the value of uh, really being together with somebody, of being touched and all of these things, they're really, really important. And I mean, for me personally, what was quite interesting during the, the whole uh, time is that, um, you know, my family is not that far away, but it, it became all of a sudden much more tolerable for them to have video calls. Because otherwise the expectation is that I would come physically home, right? And then at the same time here, I felt I was like connecting much more to the to the space uh, to the city also and to the surroundings. Because on weekends I would not just go off and go somewhere else, but I would just you know take a bike tour and go to a, a village nearby. And also the, the, a lot of colleagues, you know, are you living together? Are you alone? All of these things they really matter. And so it's um, yeah, it's much more like looking at all of these capabilities together and, and shaping it together than saying we're all going, you know, the digital way and that's the right way. Yeah, I, I just went to Poland last week to work with a group that we um, are involved with uh, in a project and it was the first time we've been able to meet physically in a room together <clears throat> and uh, in, in almost two years and it was really exciting and the conversations are just different because we did try to do a module online. But with the technology, you only have one person really able to speak at a time. Uh, other people can try to join in, but you know it cuts out the other person. Uh, the, the idea sharing and the negotiation of understanding just doesn't happen in the same way online. And so I feel like that, in a way, stifles our creativity because you can't build as fast or as well on other people's ideas. So it was it was really different uh, to, to think about, yeah, how had it been when we did a module online opposed to how, how it felt when we were in person. And we were all exhausted <laughs> <laughs> because we're not used to that feeling anymore. Uh, so it was really it was really interesting. But but we were all so happy to be in a room together again. Yeah, it just felt really different. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful note to end on because we're already running out of time. So thank you both so much for, for being here and sharing your views and, and experiences. It's been fascinating listening to you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for inviting. And thank you for listening to this episode of Humans of Rug by the Young Academy Groningen. Be sure to tune in to the next. Please subscribe for free on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, for example. Uh, all the best from Lucas Lindsay. Bye-bye. And Casper van der Koor. Bye-bye.